0: Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography and technology. I'm Kirk McElwain. And I'm Jeff Carlson.
1: Part of me is wondering if this episode is going to be like so many of those YouTube videos where you have somebody who's been pretty established and suddenly they're like, I am selling all my gear and I'm switching to Sony or I'm switching to Nikon and it always makes me roll my eyes because you're like okay good for you you're selling a bunch of stuff and then you're going to do this again in another year and i don't know it like seems sort of non-genuine but then i get this news from you that you're sort of doing the same thing and in a very like extreme way so you're not just switching systems you are paring down to the bare minimums and I want to know more about this choice and what you've what have you
0: done Kirk what have you done (laughs) (laughs) to be fair I'm not switching systems because I had two for the past almost two years so what I've done is I've sold off all my Fujifilm gear I had gotten to the point where I was so happy with my Leica Q2 monochrome that I bought in August 2021 that I was just wasn't using the Fuji. And I don't want to go out with two cameras. You know, we've talked about before the big camera bag and all the lenses, and we've talked about use a zoom lens, because then you don't have to bring lots of lenses. But I got to the point where I just want to simplify. I just want the one camera to rule them all. So I decided that I was going to sell all my Fujifilm gear, and I lucked out, and I managed to get a Leica Q3. So I'm selling my Leica Q2 monochrome. I have sung the praise of the Leica Q2 monochrome and I'll explain maybe later why I think the Q3 can replace the monochrome part but a lot of this was just to simplify it's there's lenses there's more lenses there's wide angle there's telephoto there's 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 too much and it's like You can do most of this with one camera. Yes, I can't shoot bird photos because it doesn't have a really long lens. So the the, Q3, by the way, it's the third model of the Q. It's very similar to the Q2 monochrome. It's a full-frame fixed-lens camera with a 28-millimeter f1.7 lens, which is considered to be one of Leica's finest lenses. Now... When I first got the Q2 monochrome, 28 was kind of wide, and then a couple months ago I went out with my Fuji and a 35 millimeter, so a 50 millimeter equivalent lens, and it's like, I can't get far enough back, because I'm so used to shooting with the 28. There are a lot of advantages to this particular camera now, because the Q2 monochrome and the Q2 color had 47 megapixels, and the Q3 has 60 megapixels. When you've got, as we've talked about with the iPhone, with 48 megapixels, you can crop so much. With the Q3, I can crop from 60 down to, you know, 10 megapixels and still have a really good photo. So I don't need a, I want to say a medium distance lens, right? I can get by without a 50 millimeter lens. Maybe I can't replace a 70 or a 90 or whatever, but I don't really shoot things with that so much. So, That's it. Clean out. Get rid of the Fujifilm (laughs) stuff. I think it's been six, seven years I've been shooting Fujifilm. Um, Before that, I was shooting Olympus for a few years. And what drew me to Fujifilm was when I had an Olympus Pen F, I bought the X100F. And I said, oh, okay, I like Fujifilm stuff. And so I sold what little Olympus I had. I didn't have too much. Then I went all in on Fujifilm. I went through one, two, three, four different Fujifilm cameras over the years. And I just wanted to simplify.
1: Okay. There's a lot to unpack here. And I'm really... There is a lot to unpack. really want to unpack this. So first of all, I want to mention, and we'll put a link in the show notes to the Q3. Um, Also put an image in the show notes and in the episode, if you have an an app that will display images, because the Q3, I don't know, part of me thinks, okay, I'm going for an all-in-one camera that's going to kind of do everything. And my brain thinks big. But this is not a big camera. This is a compact. How, how does this compare to the Q2 or the Fuji that you had? I mean, it's roughly the same?
0: It's exactly the same size as the Q2. All of the Qs are the same size. Okay. Um, the same lens and the same size. If I were to compare it, my last Fujifilm was an X-E4. So it's a lot smaller and lighter than this. This is closer in size to, let's say, an X-T3 or whatever, we're up to xd 5 which I don't have. It's closer in size to that. The lens is quite, I'd want to say stubby. It's relatively thick compared to its length. It's not a pocketable camera like your X100V because the the lens is kind of long, and it's a heavy camera. It weighs about 800 grams. It's it's not light at all. It's quite dense. But it isn't a big-ass SLR. It's, it's pretty... I want to say it's as small as you can get in a full-frame camera. I think the Leica M series is a little bit smaller, but not much. Okay. Because I think that's important,
1: A, in terms of simplifying, because if you're going to go to one, you want to have something that is comfortable. And I get the impression that, that sometimes when people want to do just one camera, one lens, they end up getting something that is probably a little bit bigger. Maybe they have, you know as we were talking with our zoom lenses a lens that kind of spans the whole range you know like like i have an 18 to 135 which i use all the time uh but it's big so it like that's definitely a trade off it's
0: obtrusive
1: it's obtrusive yeah what you have is very much something that you can take anywhere vacation street down to the market landscape landscape yeah exactly
0: everything exactly yeah. it's it's a very Versatile camera. It can't do everything. I can't shoot birds. I can't shoot things really far away. One thing that's really cool about this, and and the other Qs, I don't know if they all did it, but the Q2 monochrome did, is it also has a macro setting on the lens. So you turn a dial on the lens and you can do macro photos. You can focus up to 17 centimeters. That's about five inches. Having the macro lens means that you're going from ultra close to medium distance. Right, it's it's not like a zoom lens, but you have the ability to focus closer than with most other cameras. And once you switch back to normal, then you've got that sort of medium um, wide to medium range uh, with the cropping. Now remember, you've got sixty megapixels, so you can crop. So this is a really interesting sensor, and and Leica introduced this with the M11, I think, last year. You have three settings: you can shoot at sixty megapixels, thirty-six megapixels, or eighteen megapixels. This is a sort of pixel binning thing. You're not rescaling the the images in the camera, but it's using fewer pixels on the sensor. I don't know how this works. It's a backside illuminated sensor, which is one of the most latest technologies. Now, I'm going to just shoot at 60 because I'd rather have the most resolution crop. I don't want that option. But if you do want to be able to shoot a lot of photos, right, in burst mode, or you want to be able to fill up your SD card, you can go down to 36 or 18. And so this affects both DNG and JPEG files.
1: Okay, so it's actually doing like an internal crop, even in the raw files. It's not like you're going to uh, set it to 18, but then when you get the raw files, they're actually 60. It's actually, it's just using that portion of the sensor.
0: Right. But you also have a digital crop. So if I'm shooting the normal way, it's the 28 millimeter. If there's a button that you can press, and I can crop at 35, 50, 70, and 90 millimeters, and what happens is you see white guidelines in the viewfinder or on the back screen that get smaller as you go up. Now, in that case, the DNG file won't be touched, but the camera does save crop data to the GNG file and its EXIF data. The JPEG will be cropped to that size. It's not like a digital zoom. It's just basically cropping. And you can use those guidelines as composition guides in a way. So let's say I want to compose like a 35-millimeter lens, and you're obviously not going to get the same depth of field, and you know that's a whole complicated thing. But you can use that to, let's say you know you're going to have to crop when you finish your photo. You're far enough away from something. You know you're going to have to crop. Why not choose one of the crop settings to help you better compose because you're seeing the frame lines for that crop setting? I didn't use as much on the Q2 monochrome. Um, Some people use it all the time. Some people never use it. I'm fine looking at what I'm shooting, knowing that I have to crop later and cropping later. That really doesn't bother me.
1: Okay. Another thing that I want to point out that ties into this is the EVF that you're looking through. Uh, It's a 5.76 million dot OLED EVF. So it strikes me, and I'm not comparing it to any of the others because I don't know off the top of my head. But it, it strikes me that even as you're cropping in and all that, as you're viewing it through the viewfinder, you're still getting a, a, like a high quality image. Like you're not when you crop in, it's not like what you see is is reduced and you're sort of having to sort of hope you get the right thing.
0: No, you don't you you don't see the crop. You see the guidelines, the the the, the frame that you see never changes. You see the guidelines, that get smaller as you crop up it doesn't blow up the cropped image in the viewfinder. Right, right. So so e- which some cameras do do, I think Fujifilm has that feature. I think so. But they have a digital zoom which is actually altering the JPEG.
1: Right. So so when you're shooting at the smaller size, the smaller crop, you are still the viewfinder is showing your entire scene what the sensor sees and then and then you're right. you're just sort of like focusing your eyes on that section, but the the quality of the EVF is high enough that that's not going to be limiting you in terms of composing or checking focus or anything like that, right?
0: It's an an amazing EVF. You can choose to run it at 60 frames per second or 120. I've only left it at 60 because I read that it affects battery life if you do 120. I need to try that. I've only had this since Friday, so I really haven't tried out everything. But it's true that 120 frames per second, I don't know if a lot of cameras do that in their EVF.
1: I'm not sure either. I think some of them do, but that's definitely something that you are paying more for. And, you know, again, going up into the higher, more capable cameras that try to do everything. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So another good feature is a tiltable rear screen. And I really wish I had that on the Q2 monochrome because sometimes I want to get really low. And um, uh, Fujifilm cameras, I, I want to say most of them had that. And... Having to kind of guess when you're shooting low is really difficult. I mean, you can lie on the ground, but you can't always get in that position. But then you have to get back up again. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> then you have to get back up again, yeah. But this it's a good screen. It only tilts up and down. Some screens fold out and you can tilt in all directions. It doesn't do that. But it's more than sufficient. And the back screen, which I never use to compose photos, I only use in that situation. I'm using the tilt screen, is very good, very bright. I think it's an OLED, but maybe not. I've never had problems with the viewfinders or the screens on either of these cameras that I've had from Leica.
1: Okay. Um, the specs also mentioned that it's a stabilized lens, which is also helpful.
0: It's got optical image stabilization. I think every Q camera has had that. Um, so I turn this on. I think there's an option, hybrid. So it uses it when the ISO is high or something like that. So it's not on all the time. But yes, I have a tremor, as I've mentioned many times. That's so very practical to have. It can shoot up to 8K video. I have a feeling that as long as I own this camera, I will never use it to shoot video.
1: <laughs> what I want you to do,
0: if I what do I want you to, use... to do is,
1: you need to shoot an 8K video selfie. That will be like like peak <laughs> Kirk.
0: But you know, I don't shoot selfies. I, I will know. shoot an 8K video of one of my cats next. All right, get, all right, all right. To see how it looks. Okay. It's got a micro HDMI port and a USB C port, which is nice because. You can charge and you can offload photos using the USB C port. Uh, so that's new uh, with this.
1: Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like now, I'm wary of anything that doesn't use USB C. Like we're yes, we've just gotten to that point where it's so much more convenient. I also noticed, and yeah. I didn't hear whether you got this. There's an accessory that is a hand grip that lets you wirelessly recharge. It like sits into a she a powered stand or something I'm guessing you didn't go for that
0: No and in fact this is a disaster I'm oh. seeing on the Leica forums that people are saying that this just absolutely doesn't work because you can't line up the camera It's a charging mat made by a company called Digital Nation and it's essentially a mat for charging two devices Now you can buy the non Leica branded charging mat for half the price of the Leica branded um from Digital Nation So it's set up to charge two devices and you have to get the camera just in the right position and when you do, the little green light goes on on the back. And people are saying it's really hard to do, and it's not like MagSafe, where you put your iPhone on a MagSafe charger, and it kind of snaps in. Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing on the forums people who've been testing this in stores and say it's it's rubbish, or who bought it and are returning it because they just don't want it. To use this, you have to buy a hand grip. Right. Some people like to buy a hand grip. I actually bought one for the Q2 Monochrome. I don't really use it because it's a bit heavy. But this is a special hand grip that works with the charger. This is actually turning out to be a disaster because Leica is known for quality stuff, and this seems to be like they just punted and didn't pay attention.
1: That's too bad. Well, you know, Leica, they, they cut corners so much. It's just it's so bad. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, it's, it's hard with all these handmade cameras that are, you know, rushed out of their factory yeah. and all that. So it is a made-for-iPhone and iPad, and it's got a thing where you can connect to an iPhone. Would they give you a... Uh, A USB-C to lightning cable, which is not very forward-looking because I predicted the iPhone will have USB-C come this year because the European Union is mandating it. But you can connect it with a USB-C cable to an iPad or to a Mac or whatever. One thing that I'm finding really good is that the Leica Photos app, which can do geotagging, actually works for geotagging. What I could almost never get the Fuji app to work, and I never really used this... With the Q2 monochrome, because it wasn't as good, all the people in Leica forums are surprised it's actually working well. It's kind of funny because here's a feature that you're going to love this feature. It works. And everyone's for years, it's saying it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And then finally it works and people are really surprised. Well,
1: I think half of that is just the surprise that an app made by a camera manufacturer doesn't entirely suck. Um, (laughs) Fuji has released finally a new version of their app that seems to work um i've not had any problems with it yet uh, the previous one was just garbage for years and years and years and years but um the fact that that it it's doing that that gps thing which is really kind of clever that i think my x100v will do that and as long as your phone is nearby it just you know surreptitiously pulls the location information every once in a while uh but i found it to be really spotty last year when i was in italy with the old app and i haven't tried it with the new one but still it's interesting.
0: Yeah. No, this seems to be working with every photo. I'm just looking in my photos library, at what I've imported, and every single photo has GPS information. The funny thing is, you just don't notice it. Once you set it up, it just mm-hmm. happens. So it's a Bluetooth thing. It just works like it should. <laughs> you know, we've talked about GPS apps in the past over the years, right? Oh, yeah. And we've always lamented that there's always difficulty, and it works sometimes, and it doesn't update. So I haven't traveled with this yet. I wouldn't have been shooting it around the house and in the mm-hmm. village. I, I need to see what happens. but. It seems to work. And I'm almost like, don't touch it because well, it works. And, and to,
1: to clarify, you don't have to have the app running, right? It does something
0: in no, the background. No, it, so, it actually yeah. it actually runs in the background. And I didn't know this was possible on the iPhone, that an app can stay open in the background. Maybe for Bluetooth, this is a thing that they yeah, can do. Yeah, I think
1: that there's there's some provision. I mean, yeah, that's been available for uh, music Kind of related things, Um, and so I think there's like a a protected class that developers can can tap into that that makes this possible. Yeah, Um, but I mean, you know, we've we've talked to. I mean, we we can link to um, some previous episodes where we've talked about geotagging and like uh, specifically talking about how to geo. And it's a very cool thing to be able to have your location information, but it's always been a chore. It's always been take a snapshot with your phone in the same location, and then you sync the the location information or copy and paste it. Or maybe you use an app that has uh, the, the ability to create a track log, and then that's a separate file that you then bring into your other thing. Right. And there's just so much that is annoying. And to have this kind of fixed, I mean, I don't know, I'm surprised that I'm so excited about this aspect of it. I'm <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure your new phone takes nice pictures, but look, it does this Bluetooth yes. thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. So tell me about the pictures, and tell me about the experience of shooting. If this is any different from from what you've had before in terms of simplifying?
0: Well, the Q2 monochrome is essentially the same camera without the colors. Uh, There's very little that's different. So you can shoot manual, you can shoot automatic. Uh, The autofocus on this camera has been greatly improved, and that's part of the backside illuminated um, sensor, that it's got some sort of intelligent autofocus that uses phase detection and contrast detection together. They work with Panasonic on this. Um, They don't develop that technology themselves. The shooting with a camera like this is there Mm. are... On the back, there are two buttons and a joystick. On the top, there's a shutter speed dial and then a thumb dial and a shutter uh, release button. And then there's two function buttons above the screen and that's it. That's it. It's not like one of these things with buttons and dials and you have to program them. and, And yes, there's a lot of stuff in the menus and you can customize any of the buttons. And, 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 but it's like, it's minimalist. It's really minimalist. It's, it's the kind of camera that gets out of the way. And I knew this with the Q2 monochrome, it was the same. It's designed to be an extension of your eye rather than a piece of gear. That's the kind of feeling you get. You're not fiddling around with the gear and adjusting things and doing settings. It's it's either a very expensive point-and-shoot camera or it's a camera that approaches shooting with film in the sense that you can do everything manually. And I mean, the focus is so... It's just the right tension and it's smooth. And it's, you know, sometimes you have a lens where you turn the focus ring and it's loose and you don't feel it. And this, it's got that, it's got that give, but it's got that inertia at the same time. And it's really nice. And I'll shoot manual probably more often with this than I would shoot with the Fuji's just because it just feels different. It's, it's hard to explain. It really is. A lot of this is placebo, right? It's an expensive camera, and you're thinking, "I spent a lot of money, so it's got to be a good camera." But you know, I've been through enough cameras over the years to know sometimes it's an expensive gadget, and sometimes it's you know it's something else. And I understand why people like Leica so much. Uh, I mentioned to you before the show I had thought initially maybe I'll sell the q two monochrome and buy an m eleven so that 's the one with interchangeable lenses, but to get that and a thirty five millimeter good thirty five millimeter lens that 's ten thousand yeah. pounds that 's twice the price of the yeah. q three I just can 't do that for for about an hour. I was thinking when I got the q three maybe i 'll still keep the q two monochrome, but then i 'd have two cameras right, and then I got to choose, and obviously the q two monochrome you are going to get better resolution because there 's no color filter et cetera, et cetera but my thought was. And this is borne out by, you know, reading in forums. With 60 megapixels, the amount of resolution you're getting, you're not losing that much when you go into black and white. The, the main difference would be high ISO. I don't shoot at high ISO. And, and that's where the monochrome camera really shines for that. So I'm not too worried about losing it. I'll miss having a monochrome camera because there's something really special about their files mm-hmm. when you open a DNG and you see the kind of detail mm-hmm. there is but I won't miss it too much. In fact, I started shooting all these color photos and it's like, wow, color photos. I haven't done this in a while.
1: (laughs) This new technology, color.
0: (laughs) Well, it's the sense that I I don't go out with more than one camera. I mean, I've got my iPhone, right? So when I would go out with the Q2 monochrome, I'd use the iPhone if I wanted to do something color. And it's a good camera. It's a good camera, but it's not a great lens. But now I've got the color and the, the color rendition has kind of surprised me. There's something... Really interesting about it. You know, we talk about Fujifilm colors with their film simulations. Leica has a bunch of different settings, I think, standard, vivid, natural. Then they have two black and white, like a normal monochrome and a high-contrast monochrome. These are the same that you'll get on any camera, right, with the sort of presets. Then they have what they call Leica looks that you can download from the app to the camera. And they're these insipid sort of filtery type things that are like... Why would you use a camera like this to make pictures look like that? If you want that, you go in Lightroom or whatever your app is, and you use their crappy presets. (laughs) But I find the naturalness of the colors, and I'm using the natural setting, just as I would use the the standard Velvia in um, Fujifilm. I find the naturalness of the colors really soothing and balanced. Mm, Okay. Um, And I need to learn to edit color photos again because I haven't really done that many in a while. I popped these into Photomator, which is now my editing tool of choice. And I'm finding them real easy to work with. I think Photomator is a great tool for this because it has a lot of advanced color things. And I need to figure out how to make a preset from like my basic adjustments that I like. So maybe up the black and the contrast a little bit. uh, Do some curves to contrast it as well and then start from there. I did go through some of Photomator's presets, and it's the same with all the presets. They're all, you know. Yeah. I had initially queried about this in a forum saying, okay, well, this just came out a month ago, asking people, well, how long is it going to be before it's available? They said, oh, next year. So I put my name on the Leica UK website. Um, You know, are you interested? We'll let you know when it's available. I got an email last week on Monday saying that Tuesday at 2 p.m. we'll have some stock. So if you get to the site early, log in early, and you might get a chance to get one. And it was like ordering an iPhone, reload, reload, mm-hmm. reload, and all that. And the website kept going down. And so like, I got one in the cart, and then I went to pay, and the website went down. Well, actually, it was the it was the payment part of the website that was going down. So that was their back end, because they were releasing stock all across Europe. And I persisted. And after about 10 minutes, I managed to get one. And then I went over to the Leica forum that I follow, and there are all sorts of people complaining, oh, it keeps crashing. I can't buy one. Wah, wah, wah. So I kind of lucked out getting one this early. If I wasn't able to get one, I wouldn't have sold all my Fujifilm stuff. That was like, you know, the one dependent on the other. Sure. So I'm, I'm very happy. I got a nice camera. It's, you know, it's the one camera to rule them all. And I've said this about some of my gear recently. When I bought my iMac two and a half years ago, the 21 inch, the 24 inch iMac, I said, this is an iMac that's going to last me five years because these processes, the M1 processor, and I don't care if we have an M2 Super Ultra Deluxe now, it's not going to be that much different for what I do. I I have a feeling that this is going to be a five-year camera, Yeah, maybe four years because the Q has been modified every four years since it came out, 2015, 2019, and 2023. But this is not a camera I'm going to sell in a year or two. I'm settling into this one, I think.
1: I love it to hear. And I'm getting old.
0: (laughs) I'm getting old and I don't want to keep changing stuff. And I want to get rid of more stuff. I want to simplify. I really do. I love to hear somebody say, yeah, I'm settling on a Q, on a Leica.
1: (laughs) I know that's not what you said, but.
0: After trading in all my Fujifilm gear and the Q2 monochrome, I'm getting money back after buying the Leica.
1: That's the right way to do it. Because going back to a lot of these people who sell all their gear and then buy all new gear, I think oftentimes it's at a loss.
0: Well, it I'm getting less than I paid for the gear, um, sure, the Fujifilm sure, gear. Sure. I'm getting less than I paid for the Q2 monochrome. I haven't sold it yet, but it's not a big hit compared to other gear. The, these things hold value like uh, Apple gear yeah. does. It's a net positive for me financially. And it's cleaning out that drawer with all the lenses, some of which I've only used, you know, I don't know, a dozen yeah. times. It's like I had a 16 millimeter Fujifilm Prime lens. I used it a dozen times. After I bought the 16-80 to zoom lens, I never used that one again. We learn through these experiences. We learn what we've done and what was maybe a waste of money. We bought it because it was a shiny new thing and we didn't really need it. And maybe you bought it because you wanted to have all the prime lenses and, you know, to have the whole range, the 16, 23, 35, 50 and all that. And of course, I had a macro lens, right? And so the macro capabilities on this are really amazing.
1: Yeah. What I'm also hearing you say is the very important thing of knowing what you like to shoot and how you shoot and getting something that adapts to that. Because like you said, you've not really done any, you know, uh, long telephoto shooting of birds or anything like that. Yeah, that's great gear. But if you're not actually doing it, you're not actually comfortable doing that. And again, something else I'm hearing is that comfort level of knowing what you like to shoot and having a good tool that fits there, which is going to make it more enjoyable for you to actually do it. So absolutely worth it.
0: I think, I mean, we're just amateur photographers. We're not professionals. But I think a lot of people like us want to try and do everything. You know, we talked about astrophotography recently. Mm -hmm. We've talked about bird photography on the show. And in order to try and do everything, you need different lenses for everything. But you need to get to a point where you decide, well, this is what I really like to shoot. Maybe I'll use that lens three times a year, but maybe I shouldn't even bother. And I just won't shoot that stuff because I've got the rest of the gear to shoot what I like to shoot.
1: Yeah, I am all for you know experimenting and all that. But you're right. If you're not going to be using the gear, I mean, yeah, how, how many how many people are listening to this? just have stuff in drawers that they've not touched for a while.
0: Yeah, raise your hands. Go ahead.
1: <laughs>
0: we, we know that it's pretty much everyone it that has stuff like everyone. that. Yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Yeah. Well,
0: see, now you, you've got a really extraordinary camera that's hard to find now, the X100V. Mm-hmm. You could probably do most of what you do with the X100V, couldn't uh, you? I'm not trying half. to get you to sell not all your stuff because I know do, you're, yeah. doing more, you're doing more commercial stuff now uh, with portraits and all that. So that's different. Yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah. talking about you know, things you're paid for. I'm talking about just the regular leisure photography. Mm -hmm. You could do most of it with the X100V. Plus, it's much more pocketable than this camera.
1: For me, it was a revelation last year when I went to New York and Washington, D.C., and I only brought the X100V. And that felt just wrong and weird. But I I wanted to pack light just for this specific trip. And you know what? It worked really well. So yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing. Uh, you know, limiting yourself, and I am very much looking forward to. Uh, we'll put some photos that you've taken from, including the obligatory cat photo. Wait, there's going to be cat photos? I don't believe it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the actually. I, I don't want to say the first one because there were a couple of other random photos. But that was the first one I shot that was okay, and you'll see that I'm at the the level of Titus the cat using that fold-out screen, mm-hmm. which is, you know, really nice to get flexible like yeah. that. But yeah, I'll drop a few in the, in the show notes. And there's nothing extraordinary yet. I haven't really had the time to, for, for reasons of weather and work and all, I haven't had the time to really explore it. I'm looking out in the sky, it's gray clouds now, so that's not a lot of fun. In the coming weeks over the summer, if we keep having not too hot weather, I'll get some more. Sounds great. Snapshots. Have you got something?
1: I've got a snapshot. My snapshot is something that I'm writing about that uh, will hopefully be out by the time this episode drops in a couple of weeks. OnOne, the company OnOne that makes a whole bunch of different software, they just came out with a program called OnOne Photo Keyword AI. What's cool about it is it basically will do all the keywording stuff that I talk about and I advocate that you want to tag your images with keywords, you can find them later. But the reality is nobody really does. And so what this does, it uses AI and basically scans your images and builds keywords based on what it sees and what it identifies. And that can be either from, you know, something like there's an animal in the shot, there's a person in the shot, it could be, um, you know, there are options to uh, guess the age. So you could say there are elderly people in this shot, there are children in this shot. And it will just do all that scanning. And you can either write those keywords to XMP files or to the JPEGs themselves if you're looking at JPEGs. Or there's a way to uh, basically synchronize these with Lightroom and probably some other applications too. Um, works as a standalone application, it's not a, a plugin as some other things are. It's very slick and from what I've seen so far, using it, it does a really good job of identifying the stuff that's in your photos and saves you time so that you don't have to go and do this all manually. Kirk, what do you have this week?
0: I want to talk about a film that I watched last night. It's called Dark Passage. It's a film from 1947 with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. It comes from a novel by David Goodis, who was a very popular writer back in the day. Now, this is a weird film, and the reason I want to talk about this is because it uses a technique that was relatively revolutionary at the time. Humphrey Bogart's in jail for killing his wife, but he didn't do it, of course. And he escapes from jail, and you see this truck going down the road, and you see some hands holding the top of a barrel, and it kind of moves back and forth to roll off the barrel off the side. And you see his back as he's walking around. Then you see his point of view, the camera is using a subjective view. Like when you're a first-person shooter video game, right? You're, you're not seeing the body. You might see hands or feet, but you're seeing his point of view. And this lasts for about 30 or 40 minutes through the oh. film. At one point, you're seeing something in a newspaper with a picture of the man who escaped, and it doesn't look like Humphrey Bogart. So basically, what they're doing is they're using this technique because— About the middle of the film, he goes to a plastic surgeon and has his face redone. And what do you know? He comes out looking black, coming for Bogart. (laughs) It's kind of dumb because there's two ways you could do this in, in a film now. You could either use a different actor and have the real actor voice him, or you could use CGI or a mask or something like that. So you could, you know, do that sort of subtractive thing to change the face to the real actor's face. It's clumsy in a film like this because they didn't have steady cams. so a lot of the movement is like you can tell it's a dolly shot instead of someone walking or there's like artificial up and down to make it look like walking and it's kind of weird it it's not a great film it's Bogart and Bacall it's I think it's the third or fourth film they made together it's you know that sort of film noir that is is typical of the you know late 40s 50s kind of thing but that approach of using that point of view camera is something I can't remember ever seeing. Now, I, I looked up on Wikipedia. Apparently, there are a few other films that have done this. The Lady in the in the Lake used a subjective camera technique in 1946. Abel Gosse in and uh, his Napoleon in 27 did this for a while. A Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1931. But this is one of the first films that used it a lot. I've never seen this a lot in cinema, even modern cinema. It's not a common technique at all. But it did make me think of that video game, first-person shooter type thing. So it's called Dark Passage. I bought it on uh, the iTunes store several months ago, and I bought a bundle of Bogart and Bacall films. So it includes The Big Sleep, Casablanca, and some others. So Dark Passage, Bogart.
1: I see that used, especially like in superhero movies, like, you know, you'll you'll see the perspective of Spider-Man swinging through, through buildings and stuff, but usually it's just like, you know a half a second or a couple seconds here but to do that sustained for like 30 minutes that's that's impressive especially for the time
0: every time another character is talking to Bogart's character they're looking right in the camera and talking right in the camera and that too is a bit strange you know that's a kind of breaking the fourth wall thing in a way
1: yeah interesting all right until next week okay let's go take some photos let's go take some photos with my crappy crappy
0: fuji cameras <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in this episode, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups photoactivecast. That's photoactivecast in one word. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review in iTunes or in your podcast.